Hello, everyone. Uh, this is Nancy Rommelman here at the Paloma Media Podcast with Sarah Hepla. She's in Dallas at the moment. I'm in our studio in Chinatown. And we're just talking about the fact that both of us might be crying on this podcast, which is not, well, it is kind of usual to cry, but not on the not on the podcast. Yeah. Did you know that I did a an essay series about dating called Crying in Restaurants? Oh, man. Tell me. Tell me a little about that. I can talk about crying in bars, not in restaurants so much, but bars. Yeah. I could have called that crying in bars, but uh, I could have called it crying in subways, crying on the sidewalk, <laughs> crying in my closet, crying in my bed. I it, or just crying everywhere all the time. But crying in restaurants, because I noticed like the thing about crying in restaurants that's so specific is that like, unlike bars where you can kind of let loose in restaurants, you have to kind of be held into the decorum of the space. So I would always be in this relationship and, you know, we'd be in a fight and then the the server would come and be like, um, hi, do you, do you want another glass of wine? And I'd be like, yes. I would you, like really didn't like the, you really didn't yeah. like the veal cutlets, did you? <laughs> always. Or she'd be like, do you, would you like fish or steak? And I'd be like, I don't know. Now, is this just because you're fighting or is this just like a terribly bad date? I mean, I it was wouldn't. a it, it was a it was a combination of these things. It was really about the way that I am so predisposed to cry, but I try to hold my tears in so bad, but they come out anyway, kind of like a fart. And it's like, <laughs> so when I'm in a restaurant, that's when you're like farting in church, kind of thing. Well, I, I guess it's like, would you would you, would you rather do in the restaurant? Would you rather fart or cry? I'd rather cry. Frankly. I'm going to take crying. I'm going to take yeah, crying. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So, and there's a reason why farting in restaurants is not going viral. I, well, maybe I, it would, though. <laughs> Anything will go viral. I know, I know. Farting I know. in restaurants. Um, I did, was there, is, is her name Meryl Marco, this old, like, comedy writer? David from, like, Letterman's wife? Or girlfriend? Was that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so I read this book of hers. I think it was like the early 90s, and she was talking about the terrible dates she went on. And this is like way before Tinder or anything like that. And the one I remember is she was on a first date with a guy and he reached across the table, plucked out one of her hairs and started flossing his teeth with it. That's cool. <laughs> I would just be like, really? That's well, like using all the parts of the buffalo. And it's, it's like, like <laughs> why have I been wasting money all these years on dental floss? Jesus. I'm going to um, try it tonight. Yeah, there we go. Um, well, crying. Yeah, crying. Well, I told you that I, you know, I'm back from Ukraine. I'm, it's, it's actually better now. But when I first got back, it was four times a day. Like anything was making me cry. Like walking past the church where I was baptized, crying. You know, some some sweet video about a dog crying. So, but I'm a little a little more stable now. More Do you think that part of what happens is that as as an empathic person, you take on the energy of the place that you were, and there's so much pain, it has to be released somehow. And so, one of the things that women have that men don't have access to is this ability to just cry, to just leak out the pain. Well, I will say the stories, I I didn't ever compare it to that, but like a lot of stories that I've gone into and we've both kind of done these stories that can be difficult, you're walking into difficult situations. Uh, you wind up in, usually for me, I'm often with people at the very worst time in their life. A child has died. Yep. Uh, you know, there's just been this terrible disaster and I'm sort of there and I, I'm definitely not someone who like steamrolls my way into a situation. For instance, the book, uh, To the Bridge, I did not, even try to approach Amanda Stutzmith, the mother who threw her kids off the bridge, her parents for eight months. I never in my wildest dreams would like do a camp OJ. But when you do wind up with these people, 
in a hopefully respectful way, it feels almost sometimes like I'm shape-shifting with them. Like I'm, they're like inside. And then at the end of the day, you go home to wherever, often I'm on location somewhere and you just like sit down and all you can do is like eat the little fried chicken you got from the takeout place and stare at the television because you're so you're so completely wiped out. Um, 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 I'm already cr- crying. I'm okay. Crying. Okay. So I would not say that Ukraine was not exactly that for me because as I was in, I was in Lviv, it was pretty safe. I was not seeing carnage. I was seeing refugees. It was just the, the advent of what was going on there. I mean, we're, you know, I'm somewhat of a student of history. I'm like, you are having, is this 19 fucking 39? That's what I'm thinking. It's like, what is happening and what is the world doing? Like, you know, especially we live now in an age, it's like, oh, that's fake. Yeah. All those bodies that they just unearthed. Yeah. That's fake. And it's like, you, people don't know what to think. They don't know how to feel, but I can tell you having seen this, like there is terrible stuff happening here. Oh, Sarah, you're crying. And I just got back and was like, you, you just feel like you're, you know, your layer of skin or what Matt Welch says to me, your aperture is open. Your aperture is just completely open and you just, you become emotional, not like to the point of incapacitation, but you know, you're just, you're feeling everything very strongly. I like what Matt said to you. I think that's really smart. And um, what happens to me and is I'll just get, it's almost like getting a whiff of perfume or something. I just get a hit and like, I started crying. Um, I often think it's like I'm getting a whiff of perfume, but it's emotion, you know, like Mm -hmm. it's an emotional hit and I'll just start crying. And I don't sometimes don't know why. And, uh, I like your aperture is open. Um, that is what happens. And mm-hmm. there's energy between us, whether we see it or not, uh, whether we're in the same room or not. And, and so that energy affects us and those of us that have a little bit more of an open aperture. You know, one of the interesting things about me is that my mother was a therapist. And so from a very young age, she was like, it's okay to cry. Like all these other people that like the world intervened and was like, this is not a good idea. You should not be doing this. It's going to be embarrassing to you. Oh, you mean when you're talking about your book or whatever? No, 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 no. I mean like growing up, growing up, my mom was like, well, yeah, I mean true in my book, but like everyone else, it seemed like had a mother or a family figure that was like, don't cry in public. (coughs) Excuse me. Don't do this. My mom was always like, let it out, let it out. So I never learned to like clamp down on my tears. Does this make sense? You look confused. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't grow up. I don't think I, you know, I, I grew up in the seventies when like parents, they just like weren't really around. Right. <laughs> they were, and seriously, they were interested in their own like therapy or doing something. Uh, I don't think I ever had anybody, actually my dad would say, hey, dad, are you going to turn on the waterworks sister? You know, like if he would just scream at you, like out of his gourd, my, my father, who I loved, who died a couple of years ago. Um, but no, I don't think I was ever, I was ever told not to cry. And I don't think I'm a big crier in general, but I don't mind crying at all. And actually, I think it's, I think it's kind of good um, when you're, when you're feeling a lot. I mean, you don't want to be a freaking mess walking around, but you know, you, you just, you hear something, it moves you, you see something, it moves you. What's, what's wrong with, with that? With, so, with crying. so one of the things that we had on our list to talk about today was men capital M-E-N, exclamation point. (laughs) 
Well, that was actually the last list, but I mean, you know, we love men. So oh, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. That was the last list. But, yeah. um, but one of the things I think about a lot, like when I was in college, I had this, I, I've always had like really good guy friends and I had this really good friend. Of course I was in love with him. And of course he didn't want to date me because that was the story of my college years. But I was crying one day and he was like, looked at me and he was like, it's like you have a superpower. And I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, your body makes tears. And I was like, what, Whoa. Are, what, what are you talking about? And he's like, I can't do it. He had had a friend that had committed suicide in high school. And ever since then, he'd been unable to cry. It was like this blockage. And I talked to him the other day because he's now father and he has two girls and he's one of my like favorite people. He's just a deep, beautiful man. And we don't talk enough. But anyway, we were talking about a mutual friend of ours that was, um, well, I'm just going to go ahead and say it had, had died and was in a lot of pain. And we've had a lot of men in our lives that were in pain. I've had four different close male friends die of, you know, suicide or, uh, the self one you were saying from drinking, you said. Yeah, 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 yeah. A couple from drinking, a couple from guns. It's terrible. But my friend was saying, you know, we, we were talking about that tricky Y chromosome, you know, like what it is that testosterone does to your body. And one of the things it does is to block tears. You know, I don't know if you know this estrogen. Yeah, yeah, creates, yeah. Like it, it, it helps tears flow. So, and he was like, you know, men, he said it so pretty. He goes, it's like, we're trying to speak, but we're missing vocabulary words. Does he cry now? That he's no, a father. He, he, so, in my experience, yeah, most like, yeah, guys don't cry that much. They definitely start crying more when they're older. I can tell you that. But also, they cry. Men cry at music. No sports. Okay, okay. So here it is. It's sports and music, and I'm trying to think if there's anything else. But that's why sports especially. And what I've noticed with the dudes in my life is that they are often on one of two tracks. Sometimes it's both, but they go music or they go sports, depending on where they were like in high school. Most both. <laughs> and a lot of them are both. A lot have- of them it's both. But like that is the place where their emotion is allowed to free flow. And it's- that's why you'll go to a concert. Like I'll go to these concerts. I don't... I'm I'm weird on live music. I don't always like it. But I'll look around and these dudes are like entranced, like this guy's wanging on the guitar and these guys are just like, oh, they feel it. And I'm like, this is their place where they can channel this emotion. Like, it's so beautiful. And part of me wants to make fun of it because I'm like, nah, dude's wanking on the guitar. But like, it is, the same thing happens in a sports game. They absolutely become almost like swept away by the emotion. And that's where they can do it. It's so, it's actually so beautiful. I had a, I had Moynihan and Welch in the living room here. Well, they're in the living room every week, but um, we were talking one time and like the freaking way that they can talk about, like we're listening to music at two o'clock in the morning. It's like this particular song. Oh yeah, it was that year and that drummer and this and that. They're like drilling down to like 14 feet in the ground and they could do this for hours and weeks and days and also about sports. Like, oh, that guy, remember it was 1967. He made that catch. No, it was in Chicago. Oh, that's right. And I'm like, how the fuck do you guys have all this information in your head? And Michael's like, well, it's it's like several of the ways that we're very good at communicating, right? It's first of all, they love it and it's fun, but it's also just like if you're fucking brilliant and you watch this yeah. stuff and you want to do it, then they have it. Like, I don't know any of this, like none of it. None of it. 
No, I mean, a little bit. I remember a few sports games. There's some musicians I like, but I can't tell you anything. The drummer on the third album in 1967 yeah. in the music yeah. studio was playing in what? Forget it. Like, I, I, I mean, it's cool, but it's just not a vocabulary I have or even seek. Yeah, somebody, I, I've never really understood sports. I'm starting to understand it better because of my recent reporting. Um, but a, a very wise male friend of mine once told me that sports is soap operas for men. Yeah, well, sure. And it's also, I mean, first of all, I actually do love sports. I love a lot of sports. I love watching basketball. I love watching tennis. But yeah, it's dramatic. What's more freaking dramatic? And this, here's another thing. I used to, like, people, men love boxing. You know, it can be pretty freaking brutal. But it's like, how much more pure distillation of just absolute, you know, almost like life and death stuff. I, I mean, I get it. Yeah, and I wonder if boxing too, you know, there's something in the men in men's experience that women never really have to go through, which is that like they go through life kind of sizing each other up over whether or not they could take the other person across from them. Meaning that like the whole right. fight club thing. You know, um I don't walk like I walk into a room and might go, is she prettier than me or is she more desirable than me or something. I, I do do that ranking. But sure. they go through life with like, can I take this guy? But they have Is, to. Th I mean, in a right. sense, you have to. I mean, I remember saying once as kind of a joke to someone a million years ago, I was like, I, you know, I can't be with a guy who's like worrying about his hair. Because if he's worrying about his hair, he's not worrying about my ass, okay? I need, if we get into the fucking shits, he's got to <laughs> fucking take care of the situation, okay? And I, so I kind of want guys doing that. Like, I, that works for me. I, I misunderstood what she said, and I thought maybe like she meant he's not worried about my ass. Like he needs to tell me that I have a good ass. Well, that that's good too, but basically he needs to keep me safe. Okay. That's yeah, like, yeah, that's yeah. Bottom line. Yeah. Have you ever been in a relationship where you were the person that right. yes. settled the fight? Because I did that. I've done that many times in my in my relationships where I was the person that stepped in between the two guys fighting in the bar. And the guy that I was with was like, get me the fuck out of here. I'm going to get me beat up. No, no, I haven't had to do that. I did I did on the subway once realize, really lovely, lovely guy I went out with um, after I split with my daughter's dad. And I, he's such a super nice guy. And I've seen him lately. But we were on the train once at like three o'clock in the morning. And I was like, damn it. If some shit goes down, I'm going to have to take care of it. I will say I have definitely more than once used my mouth uh, meaning like kind of talking ways yeah. to get get me and not just like one guy, but other guys too out of a bad situation. Like we almost got shot once. And I right. thought kind of, well, I don't know if we almost got shot. The guys had guns. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. And I was like, I kind of like finagled things kind of quick. And I was like, oh, dude, blah, 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 blah. Got the guy talking and he kind of forgot about the fact that maybe they wanted to rob us and we went on our way. That that's that's a good That's a good skill to have. Well, one of the things I'm super proud of is that I feel that I can de-escalate aggression and tension. And so if I see two guys fighting, one of the things I'll do is step between them with an extremely calm voice. And I'm a very small person. So I, I am almost like 99% sure they're not going to throw a punch at me. So uh, my insertion into the aggression will often change the dynamic. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, I just haven't had to do that. I the only time I was ever around a lot of fighting, like like regular fisticuffs, was up at um my daughter's dad was making a film up in a reservation in Montana, the Blackfeet uh reservation. And we used to go to this one bar pretty 
pretty rough bar. And I got to realize, I was like, okay, I'm going to sit back here by the corner because I knew within 20 minutes there were going to be fists flying and I did not want to be near it. Like, yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't like violence at all. I'm super uncomfortable with it. And I actually dated a guy who was a cop. And once like somebody like stepped in front of me at the bar and he did the whole like stepping up to the guy. And I was like, no, 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 no. Like, I don't, I don't like that. I, I, I'm a little torn on whether I, I want men to protect me or not. It's, it's a weird deal. Mm. Well, I, I just mean, I don't mean like I want them to get in a fight over me, but like if we're walking right. down the street and somebody's going to like try to do us harm, I would be appreciative if the dude I'm with could like take care of that particular situation. I have yes. stood up by when I was a teenager, my, my friend was going out with this horrible person who actually wound up in prison and then shot off his leg accidentally and died. So I, but anyway, he, um, he, um, he punched her and I went up to him and grabbed him and he punched me. So that was how that went. You've been punched. Oh, more than once. Oh, I had two black eyes once. That was not good. I've never been punched. Oh, I've been punched, kicked. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's been a while. I had, it was kind kind of a couple of rough, uh, couple of rough spots, but yeah. It's all good. All it's right. All good. Well, good morning, Nancy. Good good morning, Sarah. So since we've talked, we've sent what four thousand texts. How many texts? Four or five thousand. <laughs> I think I don't that's know. a low count, but go yeah. ahead. Yeah, yeah. I was in your state. I was in Houston, and I had I a really felt good time. it. I felt that our state got cooler. All right, I'm going to give a go, go. Everybody, go to Nancy's Hustle. We chose this restaurant. It's called Nancy's Hustle. You know, we thought all oh, it'd be cute to go to best restaurant I've been to in a couple of years. Really fun. So I, what I highly kind recommend of it. Restaurant is it? Okay, you first of all, you walk in. It has the happiest staff, but not happy like obnoxious. Like, welcome to TGI Fridays. <laughs> no, just like super chill, like nice. They've got real to real music, good music playing, super nice cocktails. It's casual, but the menu is interesting. Such a friendly waitress, like. It was just great. Like from the minute you walked in, everything was great. I you, highly recommend it. Do you know what neighborhood it was in? In Houston? yeah, east uh, east downtown Edo. Okay, Edo, because we then went around, we went to this truck stop bar, and, and hung around for a while. So yeah, and Houston, then, Houston's a fascinating city to me, but I don't know it very well. And it's super spread out, and it's yeah. like not zoned. So it's yeah. a crazy city where like houses and and businesses live together. And there's no, there's no like zoning in terms yeah. of how you have to build your house. It is bananas. You go down one block, it's like, here's a mansion, here's a hovel, here's a building, here's a college. It's all on the same block. And and then of course that's also the incredible art over in uh, in the university district, the Manil. Yeah. The Manil. The Manil is amazing. Yeah, you got to go. Okay, so speaking of Texas, I don't know. We were talking about something to do with Dallas earlier today that you uh that you might want to talk about. And I did a little boning up on just to, uh, <laughs> boning up. On. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, by myself here in the apartment. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> very G rated boning up, but, um, uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's talk about it. Yeah. This happened last week and the well, Dallas- first of all, first of all yeah. you have to tell people we did not get to talk about last time. Yeah. Something that you spent about I don't know, half a year of your life? No, a year and a half, really a year and a half. So tell us what this is so the the listeners know. So I'll just back up and say that I was working on a second book and and like a lot of times, especially with second books, it was just not coming together. It was taking a long time. I was probably a little frozen 
worried about trying to match the success of the first book, blah, 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 blah. But I started having to take on different projects to pay my bills, obviously. And I'd always wanted to do podcasts. I had been interested in audio storytelling. And I had also always been interested in the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders because I grew up in Dallas and I grew up kind of under their spell or reign. You know, my family moved to Dallas in 1978, which is the peak of their pop culture fame in many ways, or at least the start of their rocket ship ride there, where they kind of owned the late 70s and early 80s. Their posters were everywhere. Um, You would go into 7-Eleven and there'd just be these like, glamour queens in blue and white uniforms standing there. And it was just very hard to be a little girl in that world and not want to grow up to be those women. I didn't know much about them. I didn't know anything about cheerleading or dancing or anything. It's just like, I want that. And so I was always fascinated in doing a story about them, but I couldn't get my hands around it in, in a way because A, I didn't know anything about cheerleading. I don't know anything about sports. So that's not my lane. But B, because around 2015, 16, the world of NFL cheerleading starts to get extremely politically fraught because of fair pay lawsuits. The Me Too movement is introducing on one side, like criticism about how the team is treating these cheerleaders, but also a tidal wave of scorn against the cheerleaders because they represent a certain hypersexualized American beauty uh, that they introduced. In 1972, the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders were the first NFL cheerleaders to wear this, what we now think of as standard in the industry, but these tardy, awesome tardy uniforms, you know, like little hot pants and halter tops. And that, that was the invention of someone here in Dallas named Deep Rock, who's one of my heroes and a forgotten figure in this history. There's a long way of telling you that in a year and a half ago, my editor at Texas Monthly asked me if I might want to work on a podcast. I had time and interest. I wanted to do something about dating or singlehood, which was what the book I was writing about was concerned with. And he just said, what about the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders? And I had just listened to the podcast, Dolly Parton's America. Oh, yeah. Oh, which man. blew my mind. Yeah. Guys, go, go find it. It's, it's really worthwhile. It was so tremendous. And it was a story about the the national treasure that is Dolly Parton, but it also managed to tell a story about women over the last 50 years and our changing place in society. I suddenly realized I could do that with the cheerleaders because they started in 1972. And 72 is the year of Title IX, which uh, changes girls in sports and eventually changes the way sexual harassment is dealt with at college level, but back to 72. (laughs) It changes women in sports. It's also the year of deep throat, which is the beginning of porno chic. And this introduction of, like, like we're starting to see this sexual revolution change society. And it was all happening at the same time. By the way, Roe v. Wade starts in Dallas. You know, that's a Dallas story that went to the Supreme Court. I live a mile away from where uh, Norma McGorvey met with Linda Coffey and, and Sarah Weddington, the lawyers in that case. So anyway, all these things are happening at once. And I realized that you could use this story to tell a tale about women 
and glamour and pop culture sexualization and the changing politics of our place in the world over 50 years through the story of the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders. Now, of course, I didn't articulate that at the time. At the time, I was just like, this sounds interesting. I'm in. And then I spent a year and a half reporting it. I really thought it was going to be like a sideline thing that I did. It turned out to be like an incredibly meaningful, incredibly difficult project. Honestly, the hardest project I've ever done. And I'm including my book in that. Which is Blackout. Yeah, which is is Blackout and available for purchase at all your purchasing uh, places. Yes. Um. So I, I, I thought that was the hardest thing. This was so much harder for a variety of reasons, having to do mostly with how bad I am at technology and audio, but also, (laughs) also these women did not necessarily want, I, I had this great idea of like, they've only been known for their bodies and their images. I'm going to give them a voice. And that's a little bit like telling someone like me, who's only been known for their voice or their writing, I'm going to put you on TV. Because it's like, I don't know that I want to be on TV. That sounds really scary. That's not my... So people, that a lot of the cheerleaders were very scared. It took a long time to earn their trust. But the, but, but the project was incredibly meaningful to a lot of us. And I've become very good friends with a lot of these women. There are a lot of women that came out after the podcast was out uh, and, and were very moved by the project. They, this is what I found is that they don't really know their own history. Uh, it's been lost to them. It really became a project about, I thought it was the untold stories. It is that, but it was really about the lost history of this team and it was lost to the women themselves. So this project came out in November of last year. It's called America's Girls. It's an eight part series that takes you through the last 50 years of history, through the experience of the women on the squad. And you start to watch the world change. You start to watch the aesthetics of women change. You start to get boob jobs or, you know, like um, hair extensions, like all these things that that they seem superficial, but in a way they're really shape-shifting what it is to be a woman, especially in America. And one of our last episode is entirely devoted uh, to the reality show. Um, talk about shape-shifting American culture, what reality shows did to us in around 2000 when they start to become a pop culture phenomenon. It's almost like reality show. Like, if you go on Twitter or Instagram or TikTok now, everybody's got their own reality show. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, but that starts around 2000 and starts with the real, real, the real world. It, you're, oh my gosh, you're right. Well, so, and, and to date it back, I mean, it would, it would, we could go back to whatever American family or whatever was happening. Yeah, the, oh, yeah. with the loud family. So just, I'm just going to insert here cause it's ridiculous. But, um, uh, when I was uh, first started to write, I had a little kid to support. So did my friend and we were offered to write this book called about the TV show, The Real World. And mm. they uh, and we did. It was called The Real, Real World. And it came out in um, 1995. It sold, I don't know how many gazillion, jillion, million copies. 
got on the New York Times bestseller list. And of course, oh, yeah. we, didn't have, we didn't have any royalties whatsoever because we were so poor. And they were like, we'll give you $7,500 each. Yay! And that was the end of that. But um, but I learned a lot. You know, I it's so funny because when they offered us the show, we were both writing for this magazine in LA called Buzz. And the editor-in-chief asked my friend if she wanted to do it. She said, well, I'll do it if I do it with Nancy. And the producers yeah. are like, so are you familiar with the real world? They had just started the fourth season. And we're like, oh, yeah. But if you could just send us every tape so yeah. we could and we literally like had never seen, had never it. seen it and we, our kids were like two and four we like st- stuck them in front of cartoons and spent the entire weekend watching the real world so, so we could get up to speed so what is the fourth season what's the fourth season goes to london and we that they actually sent us to london so we could because the cast was just like wrapping up that season mm-hmm. so we we did the last uh, bit of interviews there but you know we interviewed just about every single person. Um, I don't think anybody, I mean, some people did say no, but then they sort of like literally like last minute uh, said yes. And, you know, whatever. It's a, it's a, it's totally, it's like an MTV book. It's very colorful and splashy. Just like, I don't want to get off on that track. There's no, no, no. no. I don't it, either. But, but I, I want to, I'm so glad you brought up the real world because I actually think it's a profound project that gets weirdly under discussed, but which is so weird if you lived through the 90s, that people have forgotten the real world. It's very strange because it was such a phenomenon and you can't underestimate what it did to a generation of people to sit around watching other people live their lives. You know, I remember when it was actually out, even before I was offered the book, I'd never seen it, but I remember being at some party and in the kitchen and people were talking about it. And I was like, what? Why? Like, like, why? Like, why are you watching? Well, you know now why they're watching it because it's all, I mean, I know this because I know this very intimately with that show. They, you know, just like they're, they're playing up the drama. People are becoming characters, you know, they're like making this person be that. But of course, they're also underneath the really, the really, really sad and heartbreaking stories. I remember being in, in London and this one girl who came on and I know she'd been cast. I, I'm sorry, I'm not remembering her name, but she was like the sort of like, pretty waspy kind of girl, kind of free-spirited college girl. And like, while she was there, you could tell, though they didn't say it, like she developed like an eating disorder. And of course they didn't, they didn't, they didn't mention that, but I don't even know if they were paying attention to that, but I recognized what was going on. And like, you could just see her as the, as the episodes went on, not only was her like build changing, but she was just like cloaking herself in like heavier gray, shapeless stuff and becoming very like introverted. And that's like, so, so that kind of adds to this weird dynamic tension. Yes. There's the stuff that the, that the producers and the editors are playing up, but then underneath it is just this actual, you know, pathos. And these people were so young. I mean, to put themselves through this, it's, it means just kind of grueling. And I know that now people, you know, you can craft it more yourself. You do your TikTok in your kitchen or whatever, whatever you want to do, you can craft the image, but they were being crafted. Okay. They were being completely made to look like what the producers needed. It's kind of horrifying actually. Um, but yeah, that was that the early versions of it. So, yeah, I, I didn't really watch the real world until the seventh season, I think, which uh, whatever it was, it was a Hawaii season. And there was a young woman on there named Ruthie and she had a tremendous drinking problem. It was actually the first place I ever saw blackout handled uh, in any real way because she had a blackout very early in the season. The producers actually had to intervene. They were concerned about her because he was she was about to drive somewhere. And it was one Jesus. of those 
Yeah, it's really scary. You know, a lot has been written and I won't spend time here talking about the curated experience of reality television, i.e. how real is it when it's highly edited and scripted and all this. But one of the things I think people don't appreciate about this show and every other reality show, and I would include even silly things like The Bachelor, is the extent to which real life, by which I mean unscripted actual life, really can intrude. Uh, and, And that even within the tremendously, you know, orchestrated uh, editing room, there are certain things that you can't control. And such as the story that you told, such as the story about Ruthie that make it incredibly compelling. You know, uh, whenever I'm watching these shows, usually men will say, why do you watch that? It's, it's all, it's all made up. And it's like, actually, I don't think you realize that some of it isn't. Uh, and it, well, it, the invisible threads are also are also animating things. Sorry for the mixed metaphor, but they are yeah. like the things like I can say. So my dear friend Leah McSweeney, who I love, who had a book come out yesterday, I'm so proud of her. She's on the Real Housewives of uh, New York, and um, I know that in the middle of the last season, her grandmother, who she adored, yes. I and I, I know this because I've spent a lot of time with Leah talking about her grandmother when her grandmother was still alive. Her grandmother died and having to, you know, be this character on this, not this character, it's herself, but to sort of, you know, keep things going. I mean, I I don't know. I haven't seen the season, but, you know, imagine you have to come up, you have to go to work every day and, you know, you know that whatever they're going to be doing with your emotions is going to be servicing what they need and not really what you need. It's it's hard, you know? I, I don't know if people think, I don't really watch much reality. I, I like kind of like the the chef shows, like the cooking shows. Sure. I, I dig those. Um, but, you know, you, you don't really know how much these people are hurting. And I don't really know, frankly, it's going to sound bad, but like how much do the producers really care? I'm sure they do care about you. They care about their product, but you know, the product is what has to, what has to sell, which kind of ties us a little bit back into the cheerleaders in a way. You said something interesting. You said that they had not had access to their history. Well, that's so true because I mean, first of all, I listened to um, America's Girls. Everybody should. It's wonderful. And even maybe especially if you're not from that world, which I certainly as a New York City girl, I'm not. But um, to really see how much their behavior was controlled and how much of that they were okay with to begin with. And then when they weren't, and then the push and pull of that. But the fact that they didn't have Ex, uh, you know, um, access to their history was kind of totally baked into the system. Yes. Yeah. It's wild. Um, the control of the cheerleaders is, I always think of the cheerleading story in some ways as like an extreme version of an American female story in the world. In other words, whatever's going on with American women it's happening to them times 10, you know, concern about your weight, concern about your image, concern about your, uh, behavior and the rules that you live underneath. So in a lot of ways that's made them, well, it used to make them kind of superheroes and glamour Queens to a certain culture. And now it's made them to a lot of the population or a certain kind of population, like tools of the patriarchy kind of thing. So they are 
but they are extraordinary women. But one of the things that I learned about cheerleaders is that they are rule followers. If you're not a rule follower, you cannot live in that organization. You will get exiled. And so they basically, a lot of them are like straight A students. They're high achievers. They're often like the, they were the presidents of their student council and the homecoming queens and all that kind of stuff. So uh, anyway, they, I want this to come out the right way. They sort of do as they're told. They, they have a high propensity for female compliance. In a lot of ways, the military does this as well. The military uh, sure. is really demands that you strip out individuality, you, you are subsumed by the larger system so that you can be part of this great collective. And the collective is what matters. And in this case, the collective is the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders and the larger body of the Cowboys themselves. Uh, for all their failures at getting a Super Bowl uh, over the last 25 years, they are the most lucrative and powerful brand in sports. There is over a six point, they're $6 billion franchise because of the marketing genius, among other things, of the owner, Jerry Jones. So anyway, they have been it's fa it's fascinating that they were told a certain story about their history. But this is also true of Americans, right? We're, we're, we're all opening our eyes to like, oh my God, maybe the story of our founding, our country's founding isn't exactly what we thought it was. Or maybe, like I'm watching Ben Franklin on um, Ken Burns right now. And it, I fucking love it. And I'm so in love with Ben Franklin. And I don't even know what to do with it. That fucking guy invented the harmonica and it blew my mind. Like, just briefly, like, side note on Ben Franklin. Okay, motherfucker discovers electricity. Okay, that's big. <laughs> then he fucking invents the harmonica. And then he's like, I need bifocals. I'll think I'll just invent that. I'm like, Ben Franklin, you amaze me. And then he turns out to be a horrible uh, husband and father. And I'm like... This is the guy I, I would, I would, I know, I know, I know. What, yeah. what we can't all, we can't all be good at everything. We can't all be good at everything. No. So, so anyway, I cannot remember why. Oh, I do. I do. I know because the story of our origins, each of us is usually a mythology, right? Mm -hmm. For instance, our parents, who our parents were and where they came from and what their love was like or not like or whatever. Well, that's true with the cheerleaders. They had been told a certain fairy tale about who they were, what they were doing, and what their story was. It was a very simplified story. It favored, for instance, the 70s director, Suzanne Mitchell, and the general manager of the Team Tech Shram. And it just wrote a lot of people out of that story. This is often true of all heroes' tales, right? You, you hear this, I feel like I'm all over the place, but I swear to God, I'm keeping it together. That's fine. I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. When you, when you hear somebody like, for instance, made a movie and you're like, oh, that movie was written by Martin Scorsese and it's all a creation of Martin Scorsese. And then you learn, oh, wow. Martin Scorsese's wife had a profound impact on how he was writing and, and 
and what he was writing about. And maybe she should have gotten a little credit or maybe we should have known that it's not just Martin Scorsese's ideas and how many of his other people's stories were he, you know, was, was he stealing from or whatever. So this is a case with all collaboration, but certainly true for the cheerleaders. In the cheerleaders case, it's really the invention of a woman named Dee Brock, who is an extraordinary woman that I, I love her so much. She's 92 years or 91 years old. She's still alive. She uh, was a mother, a model, a PhD. Um, she worked at PBS in educational programming for a while. And somewhere in there, she basically invented the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders. She had been written out of their story. This was something that the women in the on the team did not know. The some of the the women that ran the team didn't know. It was ex, it was amazing to me how much I was teaching them about the place that they came from, and so this whole project. So because one of the stories about the cowboys is that they are exceptionally good at controlling their narrative exceptionally yeah. good. They tell a story that is entertainment. And if you are if you are uniquely interested in entertaining, then you're going to have to cut a lot of facts and inconvenient truths out of the frame. Are are you by any chance watching uh, uh Winning Time the HBO series I, about the uh, I need what? to. I need oh to. Oh my god. Well, I mean <laughs> I mean, it's, it's exactly what you're talking about here. I mean, it's like what it, I mean, the Lakers, as we know them, you know, starting in 79, you know, when, when magic gets to the team, uh, maybe a little bit before with Kareem and stuff and Jerry West. Oh my God, the character that plays Jerry West. It's incredible. I'm, I'm kind of a basketball freak, so I can talk basketball. can't really talk football, but when you see what went into creating the, the Lakers as we know them and the Laker girls. I mean, come on, the Laker girls. This is not something that they had seen in basketball. It is, it is deeply influenced, of, deeply influenced by the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders. I'm, Can I just say that? Absolutely. I'm absolutely. Um, but the invention of what it was, and it was teaching people to want something because it was not this thing they'd already seen. It was this confection. And so we remember, we remember Jerry Buss, right? Dr. Jerry Buss, who was like the head of this. And, and it really was a lot of his uncompromising desire. But the people that were behind it, that were doing it, that you're only maybe learning their names now because we're watching this show, but they'd completely be a D-Brock. They'd be completely in the in the backwash, which is which is, come on, it's the case with, you know, everything, with a restaurant, with a, you know, with, with a book or whatever. Um, but in any case, let's, um, if we can, let's jump oh, a little bit to why were we talking about, go, go ahead. I was going to do it too. Yeah, I yeah, can't yeah. believe us. It's just like a hydra head of a I conversation, know, I but I swear to God, it's so invigorating. <laughs> but here's why <laughs> I brought up the cheerleaders or yes. you brought up the cheerleaders. Yep. Because their long-running reality show on CMT, a cable network channel that stands for Country Music Television, was not renewed after 16 seasons. And this was a shocking thing because it had long been touted as CMT's biggest hit. You could ask yourself, what are the other hits on CMT? I wouldn't be able to answer that question either. It doesn't matter. It was still something that was touted by that channel as exceptionally popular for them, that show has been on longer than Keeping Up with the Kardashians. It is one of the longest running reality shows in existence. It was exceptionally popular with a, with a, with its fan base of mostly women 
and young women. Uh, it was something that mothers and daughters watched together. It was a showcase for dance. It was one of those shows that I started watching thinking I was going to make fun of it. I ended up practicing my high kicks in my bedroom. I still uh, am working on my splits each night. I'm a 47-year-old woman. I'm going to get it again. I'm going to get it again. I, I, can I tell you a few years ago, I I used to do some gymnastics when I was a kid. Not a, not well, but I was Same. very good at the splits. And I was Me in an too. exercise class, I don't know, 10 years ago or something. And I was like, I'm, it was like every morning at like six o'clock. And I was like, I'm going to end by within a month, I was doing the splits again. So I'll tell you what, we're going to be talking again and again. We're going to we're going to give some progress on the splits. Yeah. Thank you. This will get me yeah. back on the stick okay. because I kind of okay. fell off of it. But, you know, I really want to get the, I have the right side down and it's the left side that's sort of killing So what me. do I do? I, it's, I left like front. I can do, I can, ah, I used to be okay. able to do the Chinese splits. Me too. Would, yeah. Okay. Which I'm sure you it's know not what? called that anymore, but. It's not called that anymore. <laughs> I used to sleep that way. My mom has pictures yeah, no. of me as I, a child putting my legs out and then my head down. And falling asleep. Falling my asleep. father would watch me do this. He'd go, ah! Yes. <laughs> he didn't even watch it. Um, I want to say something about this show, which I had never heard of yeah. until I listened to your podcast. And then I think we we may have talked about it. If not uh, on air last time, just talked about it. Okay. Never had seen it. I went on and when I after I read this morning that it was going off the air, I was like, let me just uh, look a little bit. Let me go see a video and I have three comments about watching it literally like two trailers. Number one, it is so much like, um, sort of like American Idol or something like people yes. are going out there and they're actually having to be talented. Okay. Number two, maybe there are only two things. I guess it's like the whole patriarchal thing. Like, oh, you know, this is demeaning to women. I want to fucking tell you something. Yeah. You watch these women. And not only, of course, they're hot. They're hot. I mean, they're, they're, they're in amazing yeah. shape. They've got like adorable little outfits. Maybe you don't like it, but they're pretty cute. What they are able to do physically without yes. amount of energy is crazy. Crazy. And it is so, it takes so much talent and so, and, well, what it takes even probably more than that is work. These women have put in that, I mean, in, unless there's some miracle that dropped from a cloud, thousands of hours right. of work. And you see it. And to 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 just look at that and say, oh, well, I don't like that because that's for like men's delight is nonsensical. This is like watching a concert freaking pianist. It's unbelievable work. And it's it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Anyway. Thank so. you for saying that. You know, um, I interviewed the New Yorker writer Gia Tolentino, who's from Houston, um, for the podcast. And I love Gia. She's really special. And I remember her saying something like, I used to watch Make the Team when I was stoned. And we thought we were going to make fun of it. And by the end of it, we were like, I will fucking die for those women. I know. Oh, my God. And I yeah, speaking of what about that little that little gal that was at the uh, where was she at the Dallas Mavericks game the other day the one that was singing <gasps> oh my god okay so can I just say see too bad you can't see us but literally right before we started taping I had girls talk on and I was singing it and I could see myself here because we're actually Sarah and I could see each other and I was like yeah. yes that girl I was like we all feel like that girl and sometimes we do it I'm gonna put a, I'm gonna have some show notes here and I'll put the I'll put the clip of it but man. What was she singing? She was singing. Um, what was she singing? I don't know. Uh, she, what I liked is she was so locked into it. 
She could not, she could not be deterred. And anybody else that found that the camera was on them would have been like, oh, I'm, I'm so nervous now. I'm sort of like, or they'd start playing to it. She was like singing to her boyfriend. She was just like, we're in it. I'm not leaving this song. It was so. So what what we're talking about is she was at a, it was a Dallas Mavericks, I think, uh, um, um, Portland Trailblazers game. And she was in the front and you know, when they take the cameras and they show it on it, they stop it on a fan, whether they're kissing or eating or waving a sign. Well, she, was dancing and singing, like pretend singing to the mic, and she just went, oh, yes. I, I, I feel I'm, like that a lot. <laughs> I just love a, a woman who is all in. Yeah. That is just like, it just, it it makes my heart pound. So quick question about the, uh, the show being canceled. And of course, there's, you know, we can go more deeply into it now or another time. Why it might be, you know, you're, you're writing about it, why it might be canceled now. There could be stuff, you know, backroom stuff, stuff that Jerry Jones lawsuit stuff. You don't really know what it is. But I wonder if you think it being canceled is a bellwether at all for where for where the culture is. Oh, where the culture is. Well, I think it's about whether for where the Cowboys are. I mean, I think the Cowboys are just in for a very long, dark winter of scandal and uh, revelation. Uh, There's a lot of reasons for this, but mostly it all stems back to the fact that Jerry Jones's daughter, Charlotte, who is the president of the cheerleaders and had a long fraught marriage to a man named Shai Anderson, is going through an incredibly contentious divorce. And that divorce is getting really ugly. And that's where all these leaks are coming from. Well, I mean, I don't know that. I'm just guessing. Okay. But but a lot but but in some ways I'm not guessing because some of the revelations about like the paternity suit, for instance, because Jerry Jones um had a child with a woman and, and then she had to sign a non disclosure agreement that the, baby, the woman did. The yeah. woman did that the daughter, in this case her name is Alex Davis, she would never speak about her father, which is just like an unbelievable inheritance to get. Like I know people, I I know and love people that that deal with this because of adoption or because of whatever they're like. I I realize it happens, but to go through life not knowing your father and then to find out that father is Jerry fucking Jones, and she was given um, lucrative financial settlements over it, but they they run out at twenty five. I think she's got her own backstory as to why she decided to challenge the terms of the NBA. Anyway, all of this comes out because the mother was deposed in the divorce. So, and I don't know why, but, uh, but anyway, my point is that, that when you start to see leaks like this, you have to ask yourself, like, why are people leaking? What's going on? Yeah. And usually people are leaking because you're on a leaking ship of some kind. Yeah. And I do believe that's what's happening in this case. I do believe the Cowboys are a leaking ship. I mean, my God, how could you not be your, your, a $6 billion franchise and you haven't won a Super Bowl in 25 years. How could you do this? This is that there's something that's not working here. This Mm. is a, this is a bad, this is a broken system. And so anyway, uh, I forgot what I was talking about because some, a text message just came in and I, I, but, but anyway, the point is that, um, I think the reason it's going away this would be my reason. I'm just going to like wildly speculate is that I've never seen, I'm sure this is true across professional sports, but I've never seen a franchise that controls their message and controls the people 
especially the women that work for them, like the Dallas Cowboys. I think it's why they've risen to the place of prominence that they have and why they can still dare to claim the mantle of America's team. It, the, the image management there is astonishing. And I don't think, I think for 16 years, that reality show served the image because of all the things that you and I talked about. It humanized women that had been flattened into sex objects by mostly Monday Night Football, but also by the organization itself through the sale of posters and a lot of the work that that the team's leaders were doing in the 70s and 80s was trying to humanize those women. They're goodwill ambassadors. They do a lot of charity work. It became like a punchline, the idea that these, And then they and then they made $15 a game. And they made $15 a game. I mean, they, think about that. And they, they had practice like 3 times a week that was not paid for a long time, is that right? Absolutely. They they made $15 a game into the 90s. I mean, some of the story, I mean, you got to listen to this podcast. It's kind of like you want to do this thing. It's so cool. It gives you such a sense of being, you know, accomplished and gorgeous. And I don't know if desired is the word. I guess some some of that desire was not so pretty in terms of some of the stories that you tell. Um, But that you could also be, and they were very um, cunningly and strictly told, you know, you're doing this for the love. You're not yeah. doing this for money. You're doing this for love. Meanwhile, is Jerry Jones doing it for for love? Does he make $15 a game? It, it's painful. But, you know, look at us. We're doing this podcast. Where, where's my $15 a podcast? Oh, Oh, it's only 10, Sarah. I'm sorry. No, no. It's completely, but that, that that's completely true. I'm sitting in a studio here like that I built, as I said before we started this, I built in my nightgown, okay? I mean, you do it because you love it. I'm going to do it anyway. The book that I wrote, I didn't have an agent. I didn't have a publisher at the time. I wrote the freaking book because I had to write the book. So I get it. But, you know, if we were doing this, this is a bad example because I just wanted, because I love you and I just want to do it. But if we were doing this, but we were surrounded by an organization where every single other person in the room was making millions of dollars and yet we were still making $15, you know, after about 10 years, I might think like, I don't know, maybe I would like a little pie too. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a line in the podcast where I say they were asked to be starving artists in the context of a of a multi-million dollar franchise. Yeah. And, so that's, and, that, and that's yeah. what's painful. You know, it's a voraciously yeah. like capitalistic industry that asked them to be altruists. When right. this is true again and again, through, I mean, this is a, this is a common dynamic in male and female relationships. Like, uh, you know, uh, anyway, that's another thing. Another thing. Okay. So I, you know, listen, we're going to jump tracks here because I teased, I'm sorry, I teased up this podcast on Twitter and I mentioned something and now I got to do it because we're screwed. <laughs> no pun intended if I don't. I don't know. You mentioned something in your book about faked orgasms and I, I want to know, I want to know, I want to know why a woman would do this. Why would a woman fake an orgasm? I want to know why they wouldn't. Well, see, now we just have a whole nother chapter here. Well, I can tell you, okay, so I thought about it when I, and obviously I've heard of this before. I mean, I wasn't, didn't fall off the turnip truck yesterday, but whenever I've heard this, I was like, why would you do that? So when I read it in your book, I was like, okay, Nancy, think, think, have you ever done this? Yeah. And I was like, 
maybe one time, like back, like early 20s, some like weird hookup with a guy who I I think said to me, (laughs) I think he said to me, they're ribbed for your pleasure. Yes. (laughs) And I was like, what is? And it was like, I think maybe that one time I was just like, I just want to get this fucking thing, get it over with. But otherwise, I would see no point in doing that. Like, what's the point? Okay. So first of all, as if I wasn't already, I'm, I'm so like, I don't know, envious is not the right word, but like the men who have dated and loved you and been physical with you are so lucky. Like that is a wonderful. You tell them, Sarah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, you can put it on the blurb on the book. (laughs) But like, that is a wonderful gift to give that your, your sexual partner or romantic partner or whatever to not lie to them. But, but I'll tell you why I did it because I was also trying to give a gift to my romantic or sexual partner, which was the, the feeling of accomplishment and the sense that they had been good at something, even if they weren't good at it. So I'm going to back up. Oh, I'm going to back up. Okay. I just feel kind of sad for the guy because then it's like, it's like, but don't you think he kind of knows that you didn't? Absolutely not. Oh. I mean, I saw there's a book. I know, but because there's a book about it. (laughs) And in the glossary, it's like, and we mean you, Jason Jones. No, but okay. But I also like, I want to go a little bit deeper on faked orgasms because I think, like, like I, when I was writing Blackout, I had a certain understanding. And now I feel like my understanding is a little deeper. And because, you know, you keep kind of peeling back the onion on this stuff. So the first thing I want to say is that at the risk of sounding woo woo, I think that female sexuality is like a totally fascinating and mysterious galaxy that is often unknown to the women themselves. So in other words, I don't even think I know at the age of 47 what my body is capable of yet. I think I'm still learning that the more I have deep and connected partners, the more I get to learn. But, you know, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna gonna agree with that. Yes, yeah. I'm gonna agree with that. How I have an orgasm, what the word orgasm means is actually it's 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 a concept that's always changing to me. You know, like that's gonna sound really funny, but see, women are different than men in many ways. But one of the things that men have is, and I'm just gonna have to be a little bit graphic here, they've got their receipts to use a uh, a, a course term. Like when what I mean is like when they come, yeah, you see it. <laughs> there's no, there's no denying it. <laughs> now, now, if you want to get fascinating, the, the the subject of men's faked orgasms is fascinating, and I've had a lot of men tell me about it. I, I've had, I, I've, and I have heard this too from I don't remember where, but and not a lot, but guys that they just kind of they get droopy. And they get droopy, like, and especially and, uh, with condoms, and I they're came. just like they're just like, oh yeah, uh, you know, I'm done. <laughs> and then, and then, and of course, and then, and then, no woman, no woman is like, you just faked it. They're like, you're like, oh okay, cool. So like, <laughs> well, but wait a second. I well, uh, never mind. Go ahead. Okay, the story for another time. Story for another time. <laughs> no, so, no, I just, I mean, wouldn't you? Well, I guess if you're if you've got a condom on, then you wouldn't know. It's but, a con. It's condom. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. I, I mean, I think. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. I think it's almost like the stories that I've heard have always been men in, I'm sorry, but especially middle age 
when the condoms start to cut off your circulation and, you, and you're drunk and you have a little bit of trouble performing. And yeah. so it's just like, I just want to go to sleep now. Like, just I'm want just, to go to sleep. I just, just want to go to sleep. Honey. And I'm yeah. having to do all this work and you're yeah, all yeah. drunk and yeah. you're making me do the thing. And I just want to go. I, I had a friend, this is, and he was not even middle-aged at the time. He was like 30 and he has a really, I'm not going to say what his job is because then people would right. know, but it's a very, very intense job that requires a lot of concentration and brilliance. And he would just go and then he would like make sure to go to the gym afterwards because he wants to be good at that. He's like, you know what? The last thing I want to do when I get home is have to give my wife an orgasm because yeah. that's what he, at that point, because he was compartmentalized or whatever, he thought of sex as not just like, oh, it's going to be this, going to be that. Like he had a job to do and he was just like, I'm too fucking tired yeah. to do that. Yeah. 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 I, I totally get it. And it's like, like, yeah. Like after a day of pumping the well, like, do you want to go home and pump the well again? Like, yeah, no, it, he just didn't. It's like, just, can we just have like some fish and watch TV? Just watch Netflix. Just like, yeah. It's just, the um, so, but, so, okay, but let me finish this. Cause yeah, it, yeah. Uh, like, so basically like, um, to go back to my own story, I became sexually active pretty early. And, and part of this was because, uh, my body kind of raced ahead of the others. I hit puberty when I was 10. And so wow. by the time I was 13, I, I was commonly mistaken for looking 18 to 21. I had a 16 year old cousin and one of her favorite tricks was to go into a party and say, which of us is older? Of course, mm. I was four and a half years younger, but everyone would guess me. And mm. then she would drop the bomb that I was really 13. I had sex for the first time that summer. I had never kissed anybody before then. Um, but uh, that I went pretty much zero to 90. Or I think I tell a bad joke in the book that's zero to 69. Do I tell that joke? <laughs> I don't think so. I, I, sh- I should have. I should have edited that out if I didn't. But I did. I did. Yeah, I was in there at one point. So anyway, uh, I I was I was indoctrinated into the world of the erotic arts so quickly, so clumsily, so shockingly. Uh, you know, I spent years trying to figure out my own sort of like consent and agency and that own and that thing that happened when I was 13. And he was 18, by the way. And, you know, I had a boyfriend in high school, a really, really good boyfriend, like one of the good guys, like a total Lloyd Dobler type. And who's, who's Lloyd Dobler? Oh, say anything. John Cusack. Oh God, he's. I was in an elevator once with him. He was so cute. It was a long oh, time. Oh yeah, yeah. It's like, it like twenty five years ago. But I was standing there. I was like, if he asked me for a date, let's see. Probably not. I, anyway. I I don't I don't know what I think of him now, but like yeah, there not was that, a time. Yeah. There was a Instant. time when I yeah. just that particular character, as written by Cameron Crowe and embodied by John Cusack just really exemplified everything I felt that I was looking for in a guy. Chuck Klosterman has a great essay about how he ruined women because we all thought that guy was possible when he was a fiction. But well, he's he, also tall. Okay, if I could just mention that. Yeah, still, yeah, I'm just saying. Still, everything. So um, anyway, okay. uh, <laughs> uh, the point is that I had a really great boyfriend who was not tall. He was, mu- he was much shorter. But he was a sweetheart, really good guy. And he was so horny all the time. So horny. And I was not. I I was um 
constantly vigilant about my weight. I've struggled with my weight all my life. And part of it was that early puberty, you know, like I was mistaking hips and butt and, and boobs for fat, meaning, 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 uh, in quotes, bad fatness that, you know, was like, uh, you got to get rid of it. And, um, like I went to my mom when I was 17 and asked if I could have a breast reduction. Uh, and my mom was like, no, you're going to, don't you look at pictures of yourself? Like when at that age now, and you're like, I wasn't even fat, even at all. It's crazy. I, I, it's crazy. And I, my body is so slamming and I, <laughs> I didn't have any idea. And, and it, it was, but it was very much in my waspy little world of Dallas, Texas. There was just a lot of that, like flat, chest, long legs. And those are two things I'll never have. And, you know, so just there's something about me or maybe it's a female mindset that just sort of like tilted by what I didn't get. And and I want what I didn't have. Oh, that's, that's, this is normal. Human. And, uh, and so I was always thinking like, like if a guy didn't want to date me, even into college, I was just like, I'm fat, I'm fat, I'm fat, I'm fat. It was like my, and you know what? It's so creatively bankrupt. Because like apparently I have no other possible flaws, other than the fact that I might be a little, a little curvier than than other women. I just I just couldn't see past it. It was a real crisis of creativity on my part. But back to the high school and the the horny boyfriend who was so sweet. He would have been such a good partner to explore the world with, explore sexuality with. But because I wasn't particularly tilted that way, I was more concerned about how I looked. And because I felt that I was supposed to be the instructive one, I was supposed to be the one that knew this world because I'd had sex at 13 and he was a virgin. I was supposed to teach him. Well, I'd never masturbated like putting my hands on my hoo-ha. I would not have done that. I used to, did used to take Jergens after a shower, oh, this is going to get a little soft core. Sorry. Okay. And I used to like rub my nipples because I was just like, and I'll do it for like ever. Thanks. It was like a meditation. <laughs> it was just like, <laughs> oh, no, I was just going to sit here. I'm going to just interject. I remember like I, I was not, I, I did masturbate before the age of however you were. You were 41 when you first masturbated no, or whatever. 25, I, was, 25. Okay, okay. I, I was way like half that age. And I just remember thinking that. I probably was the only person that had ever done this in the history of people. Yeah. And 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 wow, this must be a pretty this must be a very dirty thing that I couldn't not do. I mean, I just couldn't not do it. I I think I was more like a guy at that age, just like I, 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 So you were a teenager? Oh my god, yes. Like a young teenager. Like I, it was just but it became like from I would say from the age of like I mean, it wasn't doing it that much like it 12, but let's say from the age of like 14 to like into college, like I, I had to, like, it was like a physical, yeah, 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 yeah. like I, I was like going to, I was going to explode if I didn't. And I think this might be more of like a guy thing. I don't know, but it was like, it was a necessity, like not, I mean, not in public or anything like that, but like your body would just like build up and you couldn't, you had to do something with it. I think it's hormones and I go through yeah. it now. Um, yeah, um, that we'll talk about that later. Like, I have like a physical uh, discomfort if I if I can't. 
Yeah. And and that that but uh anyway, we'll talk about okay, that so, more later. So we're talking but about like the fake orgasms. It. Here's here's yep. the thing. Here's the thing. <clears throat> I had only seen how sex was supposed to be through movies. I the, mm. I didn't know what porn was. I didn't no, I, I never saw porn. It was this is 1989, 90, 91, 92. I've seen nine and a half weeks. I've seen <sighs> Top Gun, uh, great silhouette sex scene. I've seen Angel Heart, bless my heart, really cool movie actually. But like all these things, that's where I learned what sex was supposed to look like. So when I started having sex, like like actual loving, quote unquote. I mean, I did, I, I'm just saying, cause I loved this guy, uh, sex at the age of 16 or 17. I didn't think I was faking orgasms. Okay. Oh. I thought I was participating in what sex was supposed to look and sound like. And it, it okay. didn't. And, and, and one of the things, there's something about orgasm for, for women that is very much like blackout, meaning that there's no red indicator light when you're having one. You don't get a ding, ding, ding. Unlike with men, men get a ding, ding, ding. It comes oh, out of, oh, it I comes out of their body. No, 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 no. Okay. We can oh. talk about, we can talk about fluttering of the vaginal walls. We can talk about like, for instance, my leg shakes, but orgasm has different manifestations in every woman. And it's a little more mysterious, kind of the way I was telling you well, when my my boyfriend could figure out when I was in a blackout because I had certain indicators, mm-hmm. but that was only because of the intimacy between us that he knew that. Strangers wouldn't be able to tell that. Same with my own indicators of orgasm. You'd have to know me and know my body a little bit better to know like, oh, this is the thing she does. She gets really, really quiet for about 30 seconds. Like, and and then... There's also a difference between what I think of as climax, which is that hard, fast, like I'm going to use a vibrator and like feel like I'm being shot out of a rocket ship Hmm. and some sort of rolling wave that happens when I'm having really super connected, awesome sex with a guy that is like a sensation that rises and rises and sometimes never ends. So, So female orgasm, which was studied most deeply by Masters and Johnson, like what they found was that we're able of capable of multiple orgasms. That science on female orgasms is still not completely done. Like what it means, what it is. You'll hear stories of women saying they have orgasms from somebody touching their head. Have you ever had an orgasm in your sleep? Uh, well, I've many, 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 many times almost had an orgasm in my sleep. And I think maybe once, I will tell you, my my sister-in-law said she went to have acupuncture once in LA from some guy that she'd never been to. And it was, he like put the needles in her darkened room and he left the room and she had three spontaneous orgasms, she said, yeah. from whatever he'd done to her. I was like, well, that's interesting. So, so, Acupuncture. So what they've found is though, even though we've, like a lot of women like direct clitoral stimulation, that is not required to have an orgasm. It is definitely, definitely not. The 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 most erotic organ is between your ears, if that makes any sense. You know, it's like what happens in the brain, in the human brain. And it it it's still 
like they can do MRI scans, fMRI scans of orgasm and see places where the brain lights up, but they can't prove to you what that means or what its purpose is. I'm just saying orgasm is mysterious even to the scientists who study it. So it doesn't see to me, it makes perfect sense that I was quote unquote faking orgasms because A, I didn't know I was faking orgasm. I thought I was just participating in this grand spectacle, which was SEX. Well, it's interesting. You can also then kind of expand, I guess, the definition of what an orgasm is, right? I mean, there is the you know, the thing that happens and the 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 tension and then the release with your body. Yep. But if it, if it there's definitely, you know, different sort of levels. And I and I can understand even if you're 16 and you don't know, but you're feeling it sort of holistically and in this giant pulsing little cosmos that you're making with cute, yep. short, horny guy, that it's it's a it's a it's an orgasmic experience. It was kind of orgasmic experience. You know what I think about when I think about myself having sex at 16? I think about those teenagers you'll see in evangelical churches speaking in tongues. And you're like, what oh. are they doing? Mm. What are they channeling? Is that something? Desire. They, yeah. They want, I, I mean, They want to be shot through with desire. They want to be transported. There's a certain communication with an altered something, altered state of consciousness. You know, you can get that too. The one time I've ever, we're going to kind of take this full circle here. The one time I ever felt I had an actual religious experience was at a basketball game. Um, It was at a Trailblazers game. Uh, Uh... uh, who was it? It wasn't Lillard. It was um, Brandon Roy, who was on the Trailblazers, had scored this like insane three-point basket that the last second in the last game and won. And it was just, it was this incredible moment. So we had tickets, actual tickets to the next game at the at the uh, Moda Center. It wasn't called that then. And it was, the crowd was so bananas of what had happened at the previous game that when the lights went down and the roaring of the crowd went up and and the Portland Trailblazers arena is known to be like if not the loudest one of the loudest arenas the fans are out of their fucking minds and that noise was going on and the purple lights i actually felt it was like a religious experience i almost felt trans Ported. And like I was one. Like I, you know, people say, I'm like this God, this church, this moment, you're probably I felt that feeling. Then they want out to lose so badly. But um, yeah, I mean, you, you, and why did I feel that? I wanted to feel that. I wanted to be part of that, that deliverance, right? So it's, it's ecstasy. Ecstasy. An ecstatic experience. It was. And uh I'm glad I, I I'm crying again. And well, we I, began it crying. We're going to end it crying. I, and think, I, it's, I, I think it's it's appropriate, Sarah. I want to tell you a story about my own, an ecstatic experience that I had when I went to go see Tom Waits in concert. And Tom Waits was an artist that was introduced to me by someone that I dated. No, I'm sorry. Just like everybody else in college. I loved him and he didn't want to date me. We messed around a couple of <sighs> times though. But he played Tom Waits for me once. And I was like, that guy sucks. But then I came to really love Tom Waits. And the depth and longing of his music was incredibly meaningful to me. And I got to see him at the Paramount Theater in Austin 
for an invitation-only show at South by Southwest in about 1999 or 2000. And he doesn't tour a lot. And I had never seen a performer hold us all at once like that. It was the most, it was when I felt like I understood what ecstatic experiences were and also why music, it music is pre-verbal or, or beyond verbal. It doesn't, it is, I think in some ways superior to writing because it has dimensions, meaning that it, you know, if I write something, it's just on the page, but this had depth and sound and feeling and vibration. And and it could sort of speak to the soul, even if the mind didn't really follow it. Anyway, it was so deeply moving, but I, I brought this story up because the person that introduced me to Tom Waits was somebody that I, that I dated or wanted to date in college. And I wanted to bring this full circle because that is the person that died recently. And I wanted to ask if you could put a story that I wrote about this in the show notes. 100%. It's called, I Always Dated Tom Waits. I wanted to call that story, The Men I Love to Have Loved Tom Waits, but that was too long. And so they called it, I Always Dated Tom Waits, which just isn't technically true, but nobody seems to have called me on it yet. And the idea was that I was always falling for and loving uncommonly these men who were drawn to art and pain and booze and music and seeking ecstatic experiences the same as me. And we often found them through song and music. And that as somebody that didn't seek that out myself necessarily, they were often the ones who taught me. You know, I I learned from men about a lot of things that I love, uh, a lot of art that I love, including Elvis Costello was my high school boyfriend. I mean, he, me he too. Just, me too. Yep. Yep. He taught me that David Bowie, you know, Waylon Jennings. Um, so many of the musicians that I love, I learned and found because of the men that I loved who sometimes, hmm, sorry, sorry. Shit. Uh, I have to say that the men that <sighs> I have loved who have most loved me have always been very, um, very attached to music, either, um, you know, in one part of their lives, they've, they've played a lot of music or they still play a lot of music, or they just actually just put a ton of music on the stereo all the time. And I never, I have never been the person that had to like bring music into the house. Like Mm -hmm. I did the cooking because, and that's like actually exactly that, like they're in the living room, either playing the guitar or putting on the records and I'm in the kitchen cooking. And then we kind of give that to each other. And um, there's still a lot of music in this little apartment that you're going to be in in about a week and a half. Yeah, wait. It's just here all the time. There's always music now and to the point where I've learned to actually put it on myself now too, which is pretty nice, including right before uh, we went on, I was blasting Girls Talk. Multiple Which is t- such a times. badass song, and That's I didn't so- know it before today. And <laughs> so good. I, I, it's I, I'm I'm real funny with music. Uh, sometimes like like Tom Waits was an acquired taste for me. The first time I heard it, I was like, I hate this, and then I came to really deeply love it. But most of the time, I'm real knee jerk. Like either I love it or I don't. And 
with that song, I just like instantly, it was like instant it's, love. It's pure pop. I mean, it's, it's just like in, instant delivery system. But it's also yeah. really like, uh, you'll listen to it again. You hear the words. It's like, yeah, I get this. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. We're going to um, we're gonna dip out of here. Um, Sarah, I'm sure we're going to be doing this again very soon. And yes. then you're actually going to be sitting in this studio with me um, uh, and I guess I've met a couple of weeks. So um, Yeah, a couple of weeks. I'm so excited about that. And I'm not crying anymore in case anybody listening to this is concerned. I know it, it really <laughs> Don't unsettles. No, I'm good. I'm over it. I always tell the men I'm dating, like, I'm a summer storm. Like, it's it comes on, but it's gone. It's then it's gone. gone. Um, so thanks uh, for joining me here again, Sarah. And um, thanks to everybody out there in podcast land. Um, stay tuned for more from us. And thanks for uh, checking in with Paloma Mania. Okay, bye. Bye.